The first discourse that the Buddha gave after his enlightenment is called the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. This wheel of the Dharma over the past 2,500 years has rolled from India through Southeast Asia, Tibet and China and Japan, Korea. And in recent years, somehow it's managed to roll over the ocean to the West. What exactly is this wheel of the Dhamma? that the Buddha set in motion 2,500 years ago. Here it means the teaching and the cultivation of five specific kinds of spiritual powers. We've been practicing them on the retreat. Tonight I would like to talk about how we can practice and develop and nourish these spiritual powers in our daily lives, in our life in the world. The first of these powers, or faculties of the mind, is faith or confidence. And it's interesting that the Buddha placed this first. There's a reason for that. Because faith or confidence, although not so well understood in terms of our minds and our lives, actually plays an amazingly critical role. If we don't have confidence in what we're doing, if we don't have confidence in ourselves, in our own ability to do it, very little can be accomplished. It's because of this power of faith or confidence or trust that we can undertake any kind of endeavor. We need that as the starting place. And if you stop to consider what it is that brought you to this retreat, it's actually this power of faith in the mind. There's enough confidence that inspired you to come, to think that it was valuable. Now, for some of you, especially old yogis among you, this might seem not very special seems like a rather ordinary thing to do. But from the worldly perspective, from the perspective of the values of the world, this undertaking is quite extraordinary. Because what we've done in these weeks is actually give up or renounce what the world values, what the world thinks is important. Last year I had 
my niece visited me at, during the three-month course in Barry. At the time, she was 19 or 20. She was kind of interested in what was going on. And I was trying to explain the practice to her. And she asked me, well, you know, do people go out at all? And I said, no. <laughs> and she said, well, do they talk? No. Do they read? No. You mean they never get to go shopping? <laughs> no. <laughs> Can they touch one another? No. She looked at me and said, this is weird. <laughs> this is really strange. And it is strange from the perspective of ordinary worldly values. In the beginning, our faith or our confidence can be inspired and motivated by a wide range of situations. Maybe we meet somebody who in some way embodies certain qualities which we admire and it inspires us to begin to practice ourselves might be a book, it might be something we've read. It might be being in nature, you know, and being inspired by some kind of connection with something larger than ourselves. We might be motivated to practice by a wish to alleviate or to come out of some suffering, the basic suffering that we're in. We might be motivated to practice, inspired to practice, out of a love of understanding. Just this very strong love or desire to, to understand what the nature of our life is about. We might be motivated to practice, inspired to faith and confidence, out of a deep sense of care and compassion really seeing the suffering in the world and wanting to understand and to be able to help. As we practice our motivation or the foundation of our faith, of our confidence, begins to expand, it begins to grow and it is tremendously enhanced as we actually experience what is happening in each moment. We develop a confidence that's born out of actually being present. When we're in the moment, when we're resting in the moment, then we know for ourselves what it is that's going on. It's not relying anymore on books or on what other people are telling us we actually know. We can feel the breath, we can feel sensations in ourselves, we know the nature of the body. We begin to know for ourselves the nature of a thought. The nature of an emotion. With this kind of confidence in our own experience, which is very direct, it frees the mind 
from agitation. It frees the mind from doubt. There's a wonderful little haiku poem by an old Japanese Zen master. It says, simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that. And we can see that in nature. We can see the natural rhythm of events. We actually are part of that as well. There is a natural rhythm of experience which we can settle into. And as we do, as we simply trust, doesn't each moment flutter down just like that? There's a tremendous sense of trust, of faith, of confidence in the moment and in our experience of the moment. There's another kind of faith or confidence that develops. This is, this is faith in a broader sense. We become confident in the direction of our life's journey. And this is a journey that takes place not over time. And it's not a journey in space. It's a journey in the dimensions of our inner understanding. We develop a very strong sense of path. This combination of presence and path gives a whole new meaning and context to our lives. Just for a moment, consider this mass of humanity and all the life forms on this tiny planet. And think of the vastness, the vastness of the universe, this tiny, tiny planet. You know, in a solar system, in galaxies among hundreds of millions of galaxies, it's really beyond conception. And think for a moment how for each one of these life forms, for each one of us, we are actually and inexorably heading towards death. What does this mean? What is it all about? We often get so lost in our dramas, as if our dramas are playing center stage in the universe. What's, what is the bigger meaning of it all? You know, we wake up every morning and we go through our work and our relationships and our play and our meals. We go to sleep at night and we wake up the next morning. We go through the same or similar routines. Is there a sense of purpose? Is there a sense of meaning in all of this? It is precisely in this journey of understanding ourselves, of really coming to a deep understanding, 
that this circularity of life begins to take on meaning. The Buddha made one very extraordinary statement which might actually be a little shocking. He said many shocking things. (laughs) Often we don't relay them all. (laughs) But he said that it's better to live for one day seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena than to live a hundred years without it. That's really quite an amazing statement. Because what he's saying is it's better to live for one day with some understanding, with some really deep understanding of the nature of life, of the nature of this whole process, of what it's all about, than to live a hundred years without understanding. The great turning point for us in our lives, in this connection with an inner confidence, with this power of faith, with this power of trust, the turning point comes for us with the realization that the source of happiness and that the source of freedom is within us. It's inside of us. It's a moment of stopping. When I finished school, I went into the Peace Corps and I was teaching in Thailand, in Bangkok. I had studied philosophy at college. I actually went to my first group of monks with a copy of Spinoza in hand (laughs) and I was going to convert them. (laughs) And I used to go to these discussion groups with some Western Western monks who were leading the discussion groups and I was asking endless, endless questions. Sometimes it feels that it's karma coming back to me. If there's no self. (laughs) I mean, it it got so bad that people stopped coming to those groups because I went. (laughs) I was so insistent. And finally, in desperation, one of these monks said, why don't you try to meditate? And I I was very excited by the idea. It It was a brand new thing. I got all this paraphernalia and my sitting stuff together. And I sat down, and I set my alarm clock for five minutes. <laughs> that was my, my first sit. But an amazing thing happened in that first five minutes. It was probably the best sitting of my entire career. In that, what happened was, just in that moment, I saw the possibility of actually turning inward. My whole life had been a turning outward, you know, with people or study or school or whatever, and just this very simple practice of looking inside and having a deep understanding that there was a way to understand it all. It's from that moment of turning inward, of seeing that happiness 
comes from within. It's not confined to certain circumstances on the outside. There's a tremendous power in that, a tremendous confidence. When we have this kind of trust in the process of deepening insight, when we understand that our journey is a journey of understanding, it's not a journey of going anyplace, but of looking within and understanding the nature of our life. It's with this faith, it's with this confidence that the entire content of our lives takes on a meaning. We can then look at our relationships in this context, look at our work in this context. Are we present or are we not present? We can see, we can examine. Is there suffering in the mind? Is there not suffering in the mind? What is the cause of the suffering? We can really look. We take every circumstance of our life as, as Dharma practice. What seems very important to me is to see that these questions are not theoretical questions. Now, what is the nature of suffering? What is the nature of freedom? One could study it theoretically, and it's very tasteless. The real taste, the real juice, is when we examine this in our own lives and in all the circumstances of our lives, doesn't matter whether we're living in a cave in the Himalayas or we're totally involved in the world. Can we look? Can we see? Can we understand? The looking, the understanding is born out of the confidence that we can do it, that we can see. Why is it difficult to develop this? Why is it difficult to rest in the trusting mind? One example that's given for this mind of faith, or this heart of faith, the example is that of a magical gem, which when you put it in muddy water, it has the power to make all the impurities settle to the bottom. Faith or trust is like this magic gem in the mind. When there's faith or confidence, all the restlessness, all the agitation, all the doubt begins to settle down. It creates a mental environment of spaciousness, of peace, of clarity. We're actually able to see what's going on. The question is, what has happened to our little magical gem? There's one pattern which we get involved in over and over again. And that is that we seize upon some past experience and project it into the future. If it's pleasant, we try to repeat it. If it's unpleasant, we defend against it. We try to prevent it or avoid it. So in both ways, 
a life becomes a struggle trying to recreate what's pleasant trying to prevent or avoid what's unpleasant I'll give you an example of this which was a very important time in my practice and extremely difficult this is quite a few years ago I went through some stage where my body became tremendously light. It was filled with light. So every time I sat down, there was this luminous body. It was wonderful. Loved it. I couldn't wait to sit. And this went on for a long time. I'd sit and these vibrations of light came. I came back to America. I was practicing in India. I ran out of money, so I came back to do some work, and all the time I was waiting to get back to India, to my body of light. I went back and started to practice, and somehow this body of light had become a body of twisted steel. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) What did I do? What had happened? I'm, I'm in the practice, being with my experience, and I was struggling and struggling to get back the body of light for two years. Two years I spent in that state of trying to recreate a past experience and it was the most difficult and frustrating and suffering-filled years of my practice. It took that long for me to catch on (laughs) that the idea was simply to be with what was happening. So strong was that attachment to that experience. When we are are holding on to a past experience, trying to recreate it, it's like dragging a corpse around. It's over. It's gone. It has had whatever impact it's had. Can we be open to what is actually here now? I tell you this story in the hope that you don't spend two years. <laughs> you know, I was I was pretty slow on that one. When we're struggling in this way, when we're struggling to recreate something or struggling to avoid something, we lose our connection with the moment. We lose the sense of being present. We lose the sense of vitality. We lose the sense of trust. We lose our sense of confidence. Because we're not actually just here. We're fighting. Can we learn to trust, to settle back into each moment's experience? When we get this, when we understand it, it becomes so simple. One of the great gifts of this power of confidence, this power of faith that comes as we settle into the moment, as we trust the moment, one of the great gifts of it is the second spiritual power, which is the capacity for effort, the capacity to arouse energy. Right effort is at the root of understanding. It's at the root of all accomplishment. If we don't have the capacity to arouse energy, 
to make right effort, nothing happens. We simply are carried along in the current of old patterns of conditioning. It becomes very hard to step out of it. But it's important to understand the nuances and subtleties of right effort because wrongly understood, effort is like a two-edged sword. It can also be used quite unskillfully. So if we don't understand how to arouse this capacity for energy, we can get caught in ambition, we can get caught in striving, we can get caught in expectation. These expectations are extremely subtle. May not only be an expectation for some glorious meditative state. Have you seen the kind of expectation in the mind where you're with an in-breath and waiting for the out-breath? Just, just ahead of oneself slightly, a moment ahead of oneself, already is too much. The question for us is, can we generate effort, can we generate energy from our own inspiration, not from some model of how we should be, but really from a place of interest in ourselves? Can we take interest in what is going on? The Buddha spoke of two kinds of effort. He spoke of the effort to abandon unskillful states of mind and the effort to cultivate skillful ones. It's very simple. To let go of those things which cause us suffering and to develop those things which bring us happiness. But how do we abandon the unskillful states? We all might acknowledge, that sounds like a good idea. (laughs) But we need some, some strength in the mind to actually be able to do it. And there is a strength, which has been mentioned in different contexts during the retreat. It's the strength or the power of renunciation. Now, renunciation here doesn't mean that we give everything up, although one could try that. Rather, it's a letting go of what is unskillful. Can we actually let go of those things which we see in ourselves are causing suffering? Not because somebody tells us to, but because we know, we see this desire, this impulse, this wish is going to lead to suffering. Can we actually learn to let go? It's like learning how to say no to the mind. But it's not a harsh no. And it's not an ang- it's a very gentle no. It's a loving no. It's a humorous no. We see something coming up in the mind. We see, we know from experience, this is going to cause suffering. No, I'm not going to do that. I think if basically we treat our minds like two-year-olds, we'll be on the right track. 
you know, how would you, if, if there were a two-year-old about to do something that you saw was going to, you know, hurt him or her, what would you say? No, you wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't beat the kid. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> it's just—it's firm, it's strong, it's loving, it's tender. Can we be that way with our own minds? The saying no in a loving way to things which are unskillful is what the Buddha meant by abandoning that which is unwholesome. It doesn't mean that they're not going to arise. They're going to continue to arise. This is the power of conditioning in us. But what we do with them, that's where our freedom lies. Saying no in a loving way to what is unskillful is not suppression, it's not denial, it's not aversion, it's not self-judgment. There's a real wisdom in that ability. We train ourselves with small things. We can use the precepts as guidelines. They're really reminders for us. We're about to do something and if we've taken the precepts not to kill, or not to speak harshly, or not to cloud the mind with intoxicants, whatever. You know, the precepts that we're working with, and we're about to do something, they serve as a reminder. No, I'm not going to do that. It creates this spaciousness in us. Instead of being a slave, really, to every conditioned impulse, we're able to settle back and make some wise choices. Ajahn Sumedho, who was the Western monk disciple of Ajahn Chah, who's Ajahn Sumedho is a wonderful teacher and has established many monasteries in England. He had made one very telling statement. He said that the practice is not to follow one's heart, it's to train the heart. We have a very romanticized, idealized view of the heart. We think that if we feel it, it must be good. (laughs) And if it comes from our heart, it's fine. Lots of things arise in the heart, some of which are fine and beautiful and wonderful. And some are really born out of ignorance, of not seeing, of delusion. And so it's not simply to follow the heart in every impulse, it's to train the heart. This takes a kind of effort, a kind of energy, an interest at looking, an interest in seeing. This is the abandoning of what's unskillful, this ability to say no in a loving way. The second part of right effort is the cultivation of what's skillful. How do we do this? It's very simple. When we look inside and we see where is the source of our happiness, where is the source of peace for ourselves and for others, it's not difficult to see. Generosity brings a very great happiness, brings a great joy in our lives. Kindness brings a great joy in our lives. Understanding brings a great joy in our lives. 
So we cultivate them. We practice happiness. We practice being kind. We practice generosity. I'd like to read something which I read at the end of the Metta Retreat. It's from the Dalai Lama, who expressed this so simply, as, as he usually does. He said, we are visitors on this planet. We are here for 90 or 100 years at the very most. During that period, we must try to do something good, something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others to share that peace. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal and the true meaning of life. It's very simple. But it takes effort. It takes energy to do it. So this is the second of the spiritual powers. This confidence, faith, this effort and energy. In our journey of understanding, this power of effort, this power of energy is directed specifically to the third spiritual power of mindfulness or wakefulness or alertness. This is the keystone of the path of awakening. If we want to understand, we need to pay attention. How can we do that in the context of a busy life? That is the pressing question of the last evening. You're about to leave, get involved, get busy. How can we carry this attentiveness, this mindfulness? I'd like to make a few very simple suggestions. One is to sit every day. How many times have you heard that? (laughs) Countless times. The first few weeks are easy, maybe. A lot of enthusiasm, a lot of interest, a lot of faith, a lot of effort. Sit every day. Slowly it begins to fade. Tonight I'm going to give you a very special teaching about this, which will allow you to sit every day without fail. (laughs) Usually we say, sit 45 minutes or an hour, once a day if, if you can, twice a day. But once a day really is minimum. Don't tell anybody else this. (laughs) This is a secret teaching. Every day, at least get into the sitting posture. That's all. That's your commitment. Every day, you're going to commit to at least sitting in the posture. If it's for one minute, it's fine. That's not too hard, is it? <laughs> I mean, just to sit in the posture. <laughs> because what seems so apparent is that it's not the actual sitting that's difficult. It's just getting ourselves disentangled enough to sit down. 
this has worked very well. You know, and so I say it somewhat jokingly, but really quite seriously. To actually make this commitment that before you go to sleep at night, you're going to get into the posture. See what happens. If it's a few minutes, fine. If it goes on for half an hour, an hour, fine. It's the regularity of the practice that actually builds its power. So don't neglect it. The forces of the world are so strong, they're so powerful, we get so involved. It takes an effort to be mindful, to be attentive, and sitting every day, even if it's just for those few minutes of sitting down, is a tremendous help. Once you sit, I think that for the most part, you'll find that you actually can watch a few breaths. So that's the first suggestion. The second is, in the busyness of the day, use the mindfulness of the body as a vehicle for staying awake. The body is very tangible, it's very obvious. doesn't have to be at some slow microscopic pace. Whatever we're doing in the day, can we be in the body and feeling it? You're driving, you're walking, you're busy at work, you're at home, be in the body, feel it. The Buddha spoke a lot about the power of mindfulness of the body. He said it leads to enlightenment, it leads to Nibbana. Don't neglect it. With some practice, and it's one of the things that has been so helpful to me in the walking meditation, you know, and the mindfulness of different activities, it's training for that. We get into the habit of abiding in the body and the awareness of it instead of lost continually in our thoughts fantasies and daydreams. <coughs> Listening to sounds sometimes take just a few minutes where you settle back and you open up and you just listen to the sounds and the spaciousness of mind. It creates a tremendous sense of inner ease. It's a way really of stopping, of coming to a place of rest without even the effort to focus very precisely or narrowly. It becomes very wide open. It can also serve, particularly in our rather uh, vibrationally agitated culture. And just as an example of this, Years ago, I was, I was in India, and I was on this very long bus ride. I was traveling up to, to Kashmir, and it was like a 12 or 17-hour bus ride on an Indian bus. It was crowded, it was noisy, it was rattling, it was the, the seats were hard, lots of radios were playing. <laughs> it was horrendous. <laughs> 12 or 15 hours of this. And the first, I don't know how many hours, I was sitting in this very defensive mode, kind of trying to keep it all out. You know, just... <laughs> After a few hours of that, I was getting more and more tense, obviously. And so something clicked in my mind, and instead of trying to keep it out, I actually opened and let it all in. I let all the noise in, I let all the vibrations in, I let all the rattling in. And as I opened to let it all in, it actually all passed through. And there wasn't that kind of resistance or tightening or contraction 
that came from trying to keep it out. I don't know what situations you may be in where the environment <laughs> is jangly, you know, or there's a lot going on. Try opening to it, letting it pass through, rather than resisting. In more peaceful surroundings, open to the peace and the silence of the sounds of nature. Sitting every day, even if it's just getting into the posture, using the body as a vehicle for awareness throughout the day, opening to sounds, using the breath through the day, taking a few breaths every now and again, just as a way of centering, of coming back, as a reminder. And stay mindful of what's around us. Now, it's not only inner-directed, it's also paying attention to other people, it's paying attention to the environment. It allows us to respond appropriately. So it's really an expanded view of what mindfulness means. Through this practice of mindfulness, through the power of mindfulness in our lives as we practice it in all of these ways, the fourth spiritual power begins to get very strong. And it's this fourth power of mind which is an essential component of wisdom. The Buddha said that with it, wisdom arises, and without it, wisdom doesn't arise. It's a very, very important, important faculty. And that is the faculty of concentration. What does concentration mean? It doesn't mean that we go into some kind of trance or absorption in this sense. What it means is undistractedness. That we're really there, that our minds are steady in what we're doing. That they're not agitated, it's not distracted. For the most part, and this is something I think you've seen very clearly in this week, for an untrained mind, it's like being in a movie theater where they change the film every couple of minutes. Imagine going to, going to a movie like that, where every, every two minutes they change the film. <laughs> that's what we're living, that's the theater we're living in. Until we learn, until we train ourselves through the confidence, through the effort, through the mindfulness, to actually come to a place of some degree of undistractedness, of stillness. We were steady, where there's some stability in our minds. This can happen. We really can develop this or do this. What's quite amazing to see and to understand is that concentration or undistractedness is not something far off. It's actually quite natural in every moment of attention. And when we take a step or move our arms, just in that movement, it's simple. We feel the movement, the mind is concentrated. We feel a breath, the mind is concentrated. It's natural to each moment of attention. So it's the continuity of attention which creates this power of of undistractedness in the mind. 
in our lives, I think we really need to look, we need to take stock of how we're living our lives with reference to this power. Are there parts of our lives which contribute to more and more agitation? What parts of our lives actually contribute to some stillness, to some peace? One place to look, again, is in our relationship to the precepts. Because when we're living a way that is non-harming, it brings non-remorse to the mind. Non-remorse brings happiness. A happy mind is easy to concentrate. So it's all of a piece. It all fits together. We can look in our lives just in the arena of simplicity. Can we simplify things in a certain way? Because when we live with simplicity, again, it's easier for the mind to be still. We can take a look at our busyness and see, is it all really necessary? Georgia O'Keeffe said something very beautiful in this regard. She said, to look at a flower takes time, like having a friend takes time. To look at a flower takes time. To live our lives in the moment takes time. Which means that we're not rushing through things. We're not ahead of ourselves. We're not toppling forward. We're really there for what's happening. It's this being present. It's this taking time, even if it's just for a moment, and another moment, and another moment. This is what creates this faculty of concentration, of one-pointedness. It's a tremendously powerful force. Concentration is what gives rise to wisdom. Really making the precepts, an investigation of the precepts, part of our lives as a foundation for concentration. Looking at simplicity in our lives as a foundation for concentration and regular practice. When these four powers of mind are present, when there's confidence, this inner confidence, when we understand that the journey we're on is an inner journey and that the happiness and peace is within us, it's not outside, So when we know where to look, this faith comes. From faith comes an inspiration to arouse energy to actually do it. This energy is in the service of mindfulness, of attentiveness, to actually be awake, be alert, be aware. From the continuity of mindfulness comes concentration. One leads right into the other, and out of these four arise wisdom which is the fifth of the spiritual powers.
we've been cultivating this wisdom very microscopically on retreat. How does it arise in the world, in our lives? Where, where do we actually find the wisdom in the busyness of our lives? There are a few, a few places which I found extremely fruitful as places of opening, of places of real insight. And these are places that are often overlooked. One is to pay attention particularly in times of difficulty. Exactly when we're suffering and when we're having a difficult situation, a difficult experience, right there is a place of tremendous insight, tremendous wisdom. Because we can look, we can see how are we getting caught here? How are we getting hooked? Where is the fear? Where is the attachment? How am I holding on? But to do this, we have to have a genuine interest and a genuine faith to look within ourselves rather than to be blaming external circumstances or other people. I was in a relationship once some years ago and my friend had a wonderful line. She said to me, not infrequently, stop making me feel aversion. (laughs) It's a good line because most of us operate in that mode. Stop making me feel this. There's another alternative. Now, because as long as we're in this mode, we're really at the mercy of other people. If we feel that they're making us feel a certain way, it's very disempowering, and there's very little wisdom in that. But if we see, okay, there's anger. Some last fall, a situation happened with me. Something happened. Somebody did something that was really hurtful to me, tremendously. It was like the first time in years and it just felt like a kind of a dagger in my heart twisted (laughs) it was really painful it was very painful and I was also incredibly interested in it you know because there was this strong strong emotion and a lot of suffering with it but I kept looking to say okay what is going on you know how am I relating to this in a way that's creating all the suffering. If the sword, if the dagger had gone through and only hit empty space, it wouldn't have been any problem at all. It hit something. (laughs) And so the real interest was in, okay, where is that identification? Where is the holding? Where is the attachment? And so the very intensity of the suffering provided the most wisdom. If we're willing to look, if we're willing to investigate within ourselves. So there's tremendous juice in this. There's tremendous understanding. It's one place that wisdom arises in very transformative ways. We really get to understand the nature of suffering and the possibility of freedom. We can also look in our lives in all the many ways we create stories about things. 
basically we're making up our lives. <laughs> we sit or stand or walk and tell ourselves stories. <laughs> and sometimes they're happy stories and often they're miserable stories, but we're the star of them all. <laughs> and we're really lost. We're, we're lost in, this, in these dramas. Just to see, not, not with judgment, not with aversion, just to really see what is our mind doing? How is it propelling us through our lives? And being on retreat, you get a good chance to look at that, to look at all that thought fabrication and how involved we get. We can look to see through the day where the eye sense becomes the strongest. Now, this understanding of selflessness in one way is very profound and another way is quite simple. So we're going along, going along, and it might be very smooth, very easy in our lives without much sense of self. You know, we're just, we're moving or we're hearing or we're tasting or whatever we're doing. Something happens, we're going along, and we can feel this contraction in this flow of experience, this contraction of self, of the I being created. Right there is the time to look. Because right there we're identifying with something. We're identifying with a thought, with an emotion, with a situation. And so to make that a practice of wisdom in our lives. Now we're going through the day and we're being not necessarily microscopically aware, but we're being basically attentive to watch out for those moments. Where do we feel that contraction of I, the contraction of self? That's an interesting place to look, and it's an interesting place to unhook. Wisdom comes as increasingly we see and understand the impermanent, changing, selfless nature of phenomena. We see it on retreat, we can see it in our lives. When we get a glimpse of the impermanence, it really can arouse a very profound questioning for us in our lives. What is truly important? It goes very fast. You know, and as I'm sure most of you have experienced as well, the older I get, the faster it goes. <laughs> you know, it's like the years are really speeding by. So what are we doing? What, what is important? An exercise that I found very helpful is to imagine myself on my deathbed, looking back and asking myself, what would I have wanted to accomplish in this life? Because it, it clarifies, clarifies our values. It clarifies what we think is important. Because when we see it, we have a clear understanding. Yes, this is what I would have wanted to accomplish. With that clear understanding, then we can actually work towards it. We can do it. We can accomplish it. But it's better to imagine ourselves on our deathbed asking that question than finding ourselves on our deathbed asking the question. 
as wisdom grows, we develop more faith, more confidence in ourselves because it's based on our own understanding. From this faith and confidence that is growing in us, we have an increased ability and interest in arousing energy. Through this greater energy, we can actually be more attentive. Through greater attentiveness, concentration deepens. There's this tremendous peace. We abide in a state of peace in the mind. Out of the deepening concentration, there's more wisdom. And so we see that our whole lives become the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. This is what our practice is about. This is what our life is about. I'd like to close the poem that is quite amazing to me because it comes from a completely other time in a completely other culture. And yet it resonates and rings so true. It's from a 14th century Japanese samurai. And just imagine for a moment, (laughs) 14th century Japan, the samurai doing what he's doing. I have no parents I make the heavens and earth my parents. I have no home. I make awareness my home. I have no life or death. I make the tides of breathing my life and death. I have no divine power. I make honesty my divine power. I have no friends. I make my mind my friend. I have no enemy. I make carelessness my enemy. I have no armor. I make benevolence and goodwill my armor. I have no castle. I make immovable mind my castle. I have no sword. I make absence of self my sword. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.